de tú. Welcome to Rebellious Soul, a podcast about challenging the status quo while finding your true, authentic self. I'm your host, Sol Garcia. Get ready, because we're about to get uncomfortable. So welcome back to Rebellious Soul. One of the reasons that I'm excited to have the opportunity to do this podcast is because I truly enjoy highlighting others' work and journey. There's so much to learn from firsthand knowledge and experience. Uh, sometimes it's a light bulb moment that gives us a push that we need to follow our dreams. And at other times, it's information that helps us to better understand and address issues in our community and around the world. My guest today is someone I've worked with, volunteered with, and I'm friends with. She is a woman that I admire. Her name is Dr. Lizette Solis. She has a PhD in international psychology and a master's in clinical psychology. And I know that her journey and experience will give us many takeaways today. I first met Lizette uh, while working at a foster family agency in Los Angeles County uh, some, I think, 12 years ago or so um, when I was a social worker. And she was actually my supervisor. Uh, years later, when I worked for a nonprofit uh, focusing on child's rights in India, I recruited her. I convinced her <laughs> to be a volunteer leader for us uh, in the Chicago area where she had later moved to. She did this in her spare time, and it resulted in her raising, I believe it was uh, $10,000 uh, for the cause. Um, over time, I've taken note of her deep dive into working with the immigrant community, in particular with children uh, who've crossed on their own, maybe, or were separated from their parent guardians after um, coming into the United States. And this is a topic that I'm very interested in. I've reached out to her uh, just to touch base because I know that she has experience uh, with these children. Um, and lastly, I, I want to add, which this is not in, in her resume, but I do want to add that she is currently part of the executive team in the largest standalone psychiatric hospital in Chicago and the only Latina there. So she's a real deal chingona. And <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on, Lizette. So, so happy to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. I am super happy to be joining you. I um, I, I, all of those wonderful things you've said about me, I could, I could likewise say about you. And so I am super excited to join you. I think you've been a huge inspiration for me. And, um, and I think I've learned so much in over the years in our work and in our collaborative work. This is really wonderful. I, I'd love to share about what I do and some of the things that are important and meaningful for me. And I hope that others can connect with that. And I hope that it can provide maybe some inspiration, some guidance, some hope and some direction for, for others to make meaningful change in their communities, internationally, in their home. I think that's what that's what this is about. So, yeah, yeah, it sure is. And I think we will get that done today for sure. And I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. Um, so I want to just for people that may not understand so much the difference. I want to ask you if you can please explain the difference between psychology and international psychology and also tell us why you chose that, why you chose that field of study. There is a slight difference between psychology and international psychology. Psychology really is the practice of learning uh, about others and, and helping others. And then I think when you look at international psychology specifically, it's just a branch of psychology that really focuses on the pra that practice of psychology across and between nations. And this could be really, you know, when you think about cross-cultural work or 
cultural work, when you think about indigenous communities, when you think about multiculturalism and intercultural interactions, um, really just an opportunity to learn more about how the world works at a grander scale and more of a global impact of psychology and its practice. And so really it's looking at how people interact with each other, the systems that impact those people, the policies and practices, and how they can either support uh, people in international settings or create barriers for people in international settings. And so it's important for me because um, I think, you know, going back to our work in foster care so many years ago, a lot of my work has been on the ground as a social worker, as a special education teacher, really, really working with people who are underserved. So this is children, these are families, these are older adults who don't have a lot of resources or a lot of support. And I saw a lot of barriers. I saw a lot of of, ch- of challenges that they had to navigate. And a lot of the times they didn't have resources or support. Um, I think beyond that, this happens at a global scale. This happens throughout the world. And really, I saw that these systemic issues impact a lot of different people, right? So like I grew up in Southern California, but I've also lived in lots of different places in the U.S. I lived in Miami, Florida for a while. I currently live in Chicago, Illinois. And um, and many different people from many different backgrounds are impacted by a lack of support and resources. And when you look at that kind of in a, on a global scale, uh, I think it's important. I think it's important to learn about these impacts. I think it's important to learn what can be done to support and help people in different ways and meaningful ways. And I think it can be important to to help advocate on their behalf as well. Yeah, I think right now when you were talking about, you know, when you were a social worker and a, a teacher, and I think uh, it, it makes me think so much about my time as a social worker and my time working with you. And it makes such a difference when you really start seeing it for yourself when you're out in the field, when you're the boots on the ground, wherever that may be. Um, mm-hmm in your community or internationally, and you start seeing these issues. Um, and like you said, you know, there's where people have, you know, a lack of resources and also even just living in other places throughout the United States, um, through traveling, um, the different work environments where you're working with vulnerable communities, it, you've just become a lot more uh, sensi- sensitized uh, through your own personal experiences, through our family members and what have you. And I think that's the beautiful thing about someone like you, um, where you're, you're, you're sensitized to it. Uh, but I think you also have uh, such a genuine heart for it. I remember when I was working with you, uh, right away, it was, I felt like such a click. Um, <laughs> I did. And, and you, and I was so old, I'm older than you. So I think some people would have been like, wait a second, I'm older than this girl and she's my supervisor. And not at all. I had a respect for you because right away I felt that you you really had your ear to what was happening. You really had a heart to what was happening. And every conversation that took place between you and I, I felt like, you know, we were both on the, on the similar page of doing of that goal of getting to the goal of doing what's best for the child ultimately mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and having to to get a hold of whatever resources or whatever was needed 
to for that to happen, you know, for the child to get the very best care. Um, and I really enjoyed so much uh, and appreciated and valued so much your feedback back then, back then, which I said was 12 years ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm horrible with the timing. Um, so I think it was 12 years ago. So I can only imagine now that you went on and and furthered your studies and you have this PhD in international psychology. I want to talk about more um, about some of the, the work that you've done. I, I'm curious too to ask you, I, I saw that your, your dissertation was on the lived experiences of undocumented Mexican immigrant women, mm-hmm. reflections of pre-migration factors and settlement in the Chicagoland area. So please tell us some about that work, some of yeah. the research, what did you do, and, and some of the, those key takeaways from that work. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I was often really inspired by our our collaboration, I think, when we worked in foster care. And I think despite me being a supervisor or, you know, you, you being the social worker, I think ultimately I, I've always been eager to learn and to grow. And I was always really inspired by some of the work that you had shared that you'd done in Kenya and just some of the advocacy and awareness work that you had done internationally. And I think that really fed a lot of my interest in, in working internationally on some level. And I think, uh, and then I think I also was often really inspired by my own personal lived experience. Like my parents are both from Mexico. They're from Zacatecas and Jalisco. They migrated when my older siblings were really young and, and they settled in the U.S. thinking like, I'm going to create a new life for my family. I'm going to provide them better opportunities. And, and I think really that's always kind of nurtured my interest in in going back and helping my community and my people. And then I think there's also been kind of this layer of interest also in that acculturation process, right? Because my, my parents were the first ones who arrived here and I have older siblings, but we always had kind of this, this idea that we were neither from here nor there, we um right so my older siblings yes. Spanish first and then but but my younger you know my younger brother and I learned English first and so really kind of navigating the, the both cultures the both worlds the the experience of our parents our family vacations every year we're going to visit you know Mexico that was those were our vacations and then during Christmas time we would drive across the border and provide donations to people that lived in Tijuana and Ensenada because there's such a level of, of need and poverty. And so I think it's just, there's a deeply rooted interest in, in creating a, a space of, of healing and support for, for my people, for a lot of people, but really, you know, for my, for my people too. And so in the process of doing kind of this international work and, and thinking through what do I really want to focus on to study and to practice, I, I honed in on, on immigration. I worked for for some time in in unaccompanied children's centers, which are shelters here in the the Chicagoland area that house immigrant children that are that have migrated and are not accompanied by an adult. And so so through that experience, I learned a lot about the immigrant family and that resettlement process and that experience of a family connected a lot with my own personal experience. I think the experience of my parents coming here um, and not know, knowing the language, not knowing the culture and, and trying to make it work for their, their children. And I think it also just really inspired me to, to look at, you know, what is, the, what is the, the glue that holds a family together? And really it's women. It really is. The, the the foundational piece of any family is 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 the woman in that family and 
when I looked at immigrant families that I that I worked with and I connected with about children, a lot of the times the woman was the one trying to navigate and figuring out how they support their child and whether the, the mother was here in the U.S. or whether they were in another country, not just Mexico, because lots of children migrate from different countries to the U.S. And mm-hmm. and so my, my communication was with a lot of women across the board. But then I thought, well, let me find out what that immigrant experience is like for the women here. Um, Chicago has one of the largest, aside from from Los Angeles, California, Chicago has one of the largest populations of Mexican communities. And so I wanted to find out, like, where are these women? What do they do? What is their experience? How do they navigate starting from scratch? How do they navigate learning a new language and and helping their families? And so I, I interviewed 10 women, um, all undocumented, um, and they had fascinating stories. I mean, I, I met two sisters who um, were from the southern part of Mexico, from indigenous communities, and migrated here looking for opportunities to work in, in agricultural work. And so first they landed um, in a different state with a brother and that didn't work out. And so then they just kept moving and they were so strong and so independent and so passionate about making it work and super resilient. And so I think learning from these stories is just really important. It's important for us to understand that immigrant communities, you know, are pushed in ways out of their homes, not because it's by choice, but because they have to, because there is no other choice. And they're super resilient. They come with so many strengths and skills and experience, and they have diverse social networks that really support these journeys. There's a lot of trauma involved in their home country. There's a lot of trauma involved in some of the negative experiences that they've had, whether it's because of crime, whether it's because of poverty, whether it's because of you know disasters that they're exposed to. And then there's a migration journey that can also be very traumatic and can also be very difficult. And then the process of starting anew that that's challenging. And so mm-hmm. um, these women that I spoke to talked about all of the, the different resources that they've used. They're super creative and using technology. So, you know, having a cell phone and keeping connected with their families through messaging pictures and videos and social media, having the opportunity to start work and being open to working in any type of work environment, bringing some of the skills that they worked in before. If they did, you know, selling flowers in the the tianguis or in the plaza and they're, you know, in Mexico, they came here and they started doing gardening, landscaping and working in, in areas that they had skills in. And so I think those are the meaningful pieces that I think we need to share about about that immigrant experience. And, and while we tend to see it from a deficit perspective, mm-hmm. there are so many resources and so many skills and so much resilience in the immigrant community and so much that they can contribute to our everyday, really. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm hearing you talking. I, <laughs> it's like so much of what you're saying. I just want to fly to Chicago and sit yeah. and have a uh, wine with you and catch up over so many years. I mean, we've, yeah. been in touch. we've been in touch these years, but, you know, you can't, it's not the same from when you see your friend and you sit and yeah. you talk about this and, sure. and it's great. It's great that you and I are still connected and have been over these years. And I have really appreciated being able to just, you know, shoot you a message or what have you mm-hmm. and, and say, Hey, I'm concerned about this issue. Let's, let's share <laughs> some of yeah. what we've learned and yeah, I really appreciated that. And and I want to say like a couple of things from 
what you just said now. I mean, there's so much <laughs> to dig into there, but I'm I just some things that stood out. Well, one thing that stood out is Jalisco. Hello, my family yeah. also from Jalisco, so <laughs> we have we have to give props to that. Uh-huh. Um, but but you know, just this whole that we you know in the United States is in large part, and I say in large part because I'm not talking about African Americans, um, but in large part, a nation of immigrants where mm-hmm. African Americans were more so brought over and were made slaves. So. It's not 100% true for everyone. Um, but for many of us, um, we, I mean, especially for those that are uh, maybe first generation Americans or even mm-hmm. second or even third, where our you know family history has really been passed down to us. And we do those yearly trips that I also did as a child yeah. to Mexico. <laughs> and we see the immigrant um, struggle and the immigrant journey so up close in our own families with our parents, right. maybe with siblings, with cousins, with yeah. aunts and uncles. Yeah. Uh, and, we, and we see it. I mean, we, li- we live it. And so we're very sensitive to the immigrant community. And, mm-hmm. and that it's something very, very personal. We see one word that you've mentioned two, three times, and I know why you mention it, because it's something that stands out to me so much in my history career as a social worker is resiliency. You know, when you're in the trenches and when you're working with communities, you and you interview people. Mm-hmm. I know back in the day, I interviewed thousands of kids uh, that have got, went through trauma. And when when you see so much pain and trauma, so much uh, hardship, and right. the, it just stands out, the resiliency of the human spirit, you know, what it was something that always stood out to me because people still will ask me like, how do you even work with this? Um, I would just be crying all the time, especially back in the day when I was always, always in the field. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was part of what gave me the energy to continue. Um, because I would see people that would go through the most hardest, most difficult, most heartbreaking things. And yet they pushed through and they were amazingly, yeah. uh, you know, they were amazing at, at, at getting through it and, and still becoming, still succeeding or getting to their goal. And I know that we see that in the immigrant community. We've seen that in our own families. We see it in the people that we work with. Um, and like you said, you know, it's it's maybe portrayed more so as a deficit, but yeah. it's the opposite of what we've learned, right. of what we've seen with our own eyes, of what we've lived through, right? Yeah. We've worked with. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and women being the glue also. I mean, I've seen that everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> From <laughs> I mean, you see that in your own family, of course, mm-hmm. in our families. Um, and that's something, too, with this issue of water that I've been working with for many years now. Um, it's the women. It's the women mm-hmm. who have to go carry the water or the little girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also them organizing it, you know, and them being home instead of having to go after those long walks for water means that they're home to raise their children to right, right to multiply what they have at home uh, for income generating activities to organize what's happening in the home um, you know for, for everything I mean them being yeah. home is is them they are the home <laughs> wherever they yeah. go they are the home mm-hmm. and the, the other thing that stood out to me is um, you know hearing these firsthand stories that's mm-hmm. how I started your introduction um, because being able to share firsthand accounts from people that are really out uh, out there doing this and 
you know, being, and for us in the work that we do, it, it would be meaningless if we didn't have, if we didn't go out there and we didn't talk to people and we didn't, weren't sensitive to real firsthand experiences that were happening. And some of them are experiences that are happening to us that have happened to us. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you said, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I, I I want to also, you know, talk a little bit about your work at the Heartland Alliance, mm-hmm. because I know that um, they focused, uh, it's a nonprofit that focuses more with uh, the homeless community, people mm-hmm. uh, going through homelessness. Um, and you, for you, you were, uh, your area there was more with undocumented children, right? So if you mm-hmm. can tell me a little bit about that work, and then we can talk some about um what you saw with these children. And I want to dive a little bit, not too much, but definitely want to dive a little bit into how you've seen the difference in how how the children and their parents have been portrayed in these last four years versus with the previous administration. Like, what are the differences you who have kind of, who've been working in this area? So my, um, my work with Heartland Alliance was actually really instrumental in, in kind of the direction of my career, really. Um, a lot of my interest in international work besides kind of what I mentioned with you and really inspired me with a lot of your, your personal stories and personal work. But, but I also really um, connected with much more of the immigrant experience with my own family through, through my work at Heartland Alliance. They are the largest human rights organization here in the Midwest. And my work there was with unaccompanied children in shelters. And so this is what we hear about quite a bit in the news, right? There are children who are being housed in cages and children who are being separated from their families and torn up, you know, they're torn apart. And, and so, yes, there is a lot of that, but yes, there is also a lot of humanitarian work and a lot of interest um, in organizations to, to support these children. And, um, and a lot of my work was was really tied around that. A lot of trauma-informed care, a lot of support um, to these children and, and their families, and um, and a lot of really networking internationally. We worked quite a bit with the Red Cross. We worked quite a bit with the local uh, human rights organizations, legal organizations, faith-based organizations that supported our work. And, and so I think, yes, their detention at the border is ugly. Their experience is ugly. The The fact that there is no place to send them um, can really be detrimental and is not in, aligned with human rights care or human rights international policy on treating children who, who have migrated seeking asylum or refugee status. However, I think there are, are organizations that focus on supporting and doing the work. And there are a lot of people who work in this area. There are a lot of organizations that I've kept in touch with and have done some continued work in that area. And, and they go out to the border and, and see firsthand and advocate on their behalf and support to write policy. Um, and so uh, I think that there are, there are meaningful ways that we can still help these children. There is a difference. At the present time with the current presidency, there is a difference in how these, these children are treated and how these families are, are, are treated and how policy is practiced. I think COVID-19 really has a lot to do with how that, has, that interpretation has kind of taken shape. But I think... I think the current presidency, um, the current administration does not really 
uh, abide by the human rights international laws on how to how to treat asylum seekers and how to treat families that are seeking refuge. I do think that there has been a lot of manipulation of how you practice that policy. And I think that there has been uh, a detrimental impact on immigrant families across the board with being sent back immediately without the opportunity for really, you know, seeking out an asylum claim. And so um, did some of this happen during the Obama administration? Yes. Yeah. Were children separated from their families? Yes. Um, I think at, at that time is really, you know, maybe like 2011, 2012 is when you really started to kind of see that beginning influx. A lot of what happened at that time was that the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and that kind of lower corner point of Mexico, really saw an increase in violence. They saw an increase in poverty. They saw an increase in a violation of their rights within their own home countries. And and that is kind of what prompted that first influx of migration of children and families. A lot of them were women with their children. And and around that time, what was happening is was almost like a word of mouth, like a caravan. Large groups of women and their children would start migrating by foot, by train, whatever way they can make it in vans um, through Mexico up into the U.S. And at that time, really, there was an opportunity for them to seek asylum and for them to, to have kind of that due process in line with what we're supposed to do in the U.S. and internationally. But along with kind of that northern central triangle, that that area, other international countries started to migrate as well. We saw an influx of, of children migrating from India, young adults, young boys. We saw an influx of, of children migrating from China and Africa. And so there's just this huge need internationally support people living in poverty to support children and families. And so that's kind of that first migration influx. And, and it has continued. Um, most recently, there's been a decline in migration, but people continue to move because there's a desperate need, because in their home countries, they are not safe, because this is a human rights issue, because they have a need to be protected, to be safe in their own countries. And there are times when they cannot trust their own governments. There's times when they can not have the resources available to, to provide for their families, to obtain food and water and protection and shelter. And it's a it's a tragedy, really. This is this is a, a tragedy that we are all, I think, responsible for, and I think um, that we we must commit to 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 be able to to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you so much um, noting and helping to clarify the difference um, in these past years, because it's by no means. Um, I think is it that when the Trump administration came in, uh, now all of a sudden this is a problem. Um, It's become a larger problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, I think for many of us who are following this, we could clearly see that no, international uh, laws and policies are not really being respected. I think about Mm -hmm. the the Flores settlement, but it's something that that started some, some time back and it is interesting to see how it's, developed. And I, I agree with you. I, this is on all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is on all of us to, to really take interest, to get informed, um, a, and to help, really to help these families. And I think it's important to clarify also what you said, you know, why people do leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, for those of us that come from immigrant families, 
uh, and that, or that are working in the field, it's clear to us. But it's so sad that really the majority of, of these families, most of them, are, are going through such hardships. Uh, and I mean, who I remember my mom telling me that you know she used to go uh, when she first went to when she first left Mexico you know she went to Los Angeles with my dad before they had us and she used to go to this Chinese man's liquor store uh, as often as she could to buy whatever she could and she didn't care what it was if it was a gum or whatever and the only reason she went there was because he spoke Spanish to her and yeah. so you know it's not she and she was the first one to leave her her family uh, in Mexico and it broke her heart to do that it broke her heart to leave her mother who was widowed at, at by then and it was you know now when I now me living here in Mexico and I think about how much I miss my mom like and my mom is a flight away before COVID I used to be able to see her more often but yeah. even still since I've been here I'll be here almost five years in January and just not having access to my family seeing my my nieces grow up uh, and being there for important times and moments and even as a Mexican-American there's still cultural things uh, mm -hmm. I'm in Mexico but there's cultural things that I miss from my Chicano uh, yeah. people back home <laughs> And, you know, and, and my my Mexican people back home that have been there for years and years, this is still different uh, in the culture. And I and I have felt that and it's made me think so much. Oh, my goodness. Like my parents dealt with this on such a deeper level. And I think it's it's so important that, that we talk about this and share share these stories. So I, I truly appreciate um, that you're doing that. Um, one question that I wanted to ask you is, you know, there's this this claim that some people that are just completely against the immigrant community trying to flee the very difficult situations um, and bring their families over here, um, you know, and the way that they're portrayed in, in a lot of the media sometimes is just criminals or what have you. Uh, often along with those conversations, there's a claim that the children are coming through with adults who portray themselves as their parents or guardians when in fact they aren't. Uh, there are people that who have trafficked them. Mm -hmm. what, can, what insight can you give us about that? Sure, human trafficking is a is a real concern, and and there is a there is a huge problem tied to human trafficking. There are networks of um, right. We we when I was growing up, we called them coyotes, right? Los coyotes. Mm -hmm. Everybody plays a coyote, and so um, so there are human trafficking networks. There are networks of of paid help whether they're coyotes, whether they're paid guides, whatever you may want to call them. Sometimes in some of the areas in Mexico, there are, these are groups that are manipulated or managed by, by criminal groups. But, but, but I would say that for the most part, most people are migrating really just trying to navigate with whatever resources they may have. And so Yes, there are concerns around human trafficking. Yes, that does happen. Yes, some people do try to pass themselves off as a parent or a guardian or a family member. Um, that is probably not the majority. This, this does pose a huge risk for the families. People are often migrating and trying to seek out help and may not have the resources. And so sometimes they, they are taken for ransom or they are, they are you know, put in unsafe situations or have to work out 
the deuda, right? The debt, that they pay that off through work or pay that off through some, you know, some way back to these people that have helped them that they would have, they would have potentially paid, but didn't have the resources to do so. And so I think that is a huge risk. I think a lot of what we see in the media, a lot of what we see by this administration, um, a lot of it is, is really tapping into people's fears and, and, and really kind of highlighting things that are not always necessarily reflective of what's really happening. Are these risks real risks for the immigrant community? Absolutely. Are these risks real risks for the safety at the border for, for people who are attempting to seek asylum? Absolutely. Is this a, 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 a real risk for the people who are here currently living in the U.S.? No, of course not. The The people coming really are coming because, because they are seeking Right. We call them like push pull factors. So they're being pushed out of and driven out of their communities because of violent activities, because of crime, because of gangs, because of poverty, because of lack of work opportunities or employment opportunities or education or resources. But they're also being pulled by this need for a workforce here in the U.S. A significant amount of our workforce in the U.S. in agriculture are undocumented immigrants. A significant amount of our housekeeping, our domestic workers, our our caregivers are undocumented immigrants. This country, this country really is sustained and cared for by the immigrant community. Our workers that are undocumented are working in some of the areas that people who live here legally, U.S. citizens, people who have the authority and the ability to work legally may choose not to work. And so I think that's important. It's also important to note that the immigrant community is also responsible for significant amount of independent small businesses. A lot of the, the economic growth of this of this country, their huge, huge contribution just to the, the economic growth. And I think that's important. Well, at the present time, too, if you think about our healthcare need because of COVID, we have there's a huge number of healthcare workers who are immigrants, whether they are they have been DACA workers, right? Whether they have been kind of authorized temporarily through through DACA to work in healthcare, whether they have visas or whether they have some type of temporary authorization to work. We have a lot of workers who are immigrants that are nurses, that are physicians, that work in essential work, right? What is considered at the present time essential work, like mm-hmm. food processing, agricultural work. And this is really important. These are some really meaningful ways to sustain our our communities, to sustain our families while we're kind of in quarantine. Wow. In in such a short time, you totally made the case as to why it's important uh, that we that we care for these community members, for people who, who come to the U.S. I know that in every population or what have you, you're going to have some bad apples. That's just mm-hmm. a given. Um, that is just a given. So I, I do want to, I want to ask for people who are afraid, I know you talked about this, the fear-based, um, but for mm-hmm. those people who are afraid, uh, who are coming to the country that who could maybe, I mean, this whole talk about MS-13 has just gotten yeah. out of control, I think. Um, it's like a- after everything that you just said, and that's what many of us associate immigrants with, mm-hmm. it's so sad that it comes down for many people, you know, the word uh, undocumented immigrant translates to Alien, mm-hmm. criminal, MS-13, freeloader. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's that that someone can 
can be treated and looked at in such an inhumanely inhumane way um, is is crazy to me. But for those people that are afraid of immigrants that could be in those categories of you know maybe violent or or gangsters or what have you what what would you say to that like what what are and also what are some of the the I know you it's we can't solve it here right now um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big problem um, but what are some of the answers to to dealing with some of these obstacles and you know people that also feel of course you can't just let everyone come in whenever they want they should be checked totally understand that there should be a process um, that people should respect. What do you say to that? I mean, I think I, I have a few thoughts. The the gang problem that is often brought up by this administration in the media and in reports about, you know, these, these immigrant, you know, gang members, the gang problem in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras is truly a, a, a real problem. It is a problem that does exist there. But it is also a problem that was created by the systems and inefficiencies that that the U.S. posed. These were these these gangs originated, and I think it would you know take a whole another series of podcasts to discuss this. Yeah. But but these gangs were created as a result of you know a wave of immigrants that were that were criminalized in the '80s and the '90s, and and these gangs were created in in California, in the prison systems. And then instead of addressing the issue there, they deported these people back to Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, the southern part of Mexico. And, and it just plagued. It was like a plague. It just spread and, and created, you know, these, these networks of criminal activity in these countries that have been fed by the U.S., by by the U.S. creating gangs in their prison system and then sending those people back to their, their countries. So with that said, I think this is a, a true problem for, for the people who are not involved in gangs there. And I would say that most of the people that make it across the border are children and families who, who are trying to flee the violence that is in their countries. Uh, my... You know, my educated guess on this based on just research, based on what we've seen at the border, is that the criminals are hardly making it all the way and back into this country. They're not interested in that. They're interested in staying in their own country and, you know, setting up ransoms and, and stealing and, you know, participating in the criminal activity within their country. So on a higher level, what can we do? I think creating awareness and sharing information and learning about it is is important. I think it is important for us to be able to to understand the root of that problem and and you know figure out ways to address it. I think at a at a higher level when you look at human rights laws, when you look at international laws for how to treat people who are fleeing a violence and who qualify for asylum, I think we need to practice those laws. Those laws already exist. We just need to practice them as they are intended to protect the people that are really at risk in their countries. I think the other the other thing that is important is you know really advocating on on behalf of these children and families and and 
participating, ways that we can do, right? Because everyone's going to say, well, how, I don't know how to change a law or impact a law. or, But there are things that you can do. You can seek out um, your your local government leadership and speak out on behalf of, of all of the injustices that we are seeing in the news and all of the unjust practices that we are seeing. You can sign up to volunteer with organizations. There are plenty of organizations. You know, here in Chicago, there are faith-based organizations. There are advocacy groups like the Young Center is an advocacy group that you can sign up with. They have a bunch of branches across the U.S. and they they take on volunteers to advoc- that be, can be advocates for these young children in detention. There are so many opportunities, you know, to seek out organizations that do the ground work, that do the grassroots work, that go out and hand out food, that go out and and um, provide support or, or provide help with just going to doctor's visits or going to legal appointments or whatever it may be. But I think that, you know, on the floor, that work, that is what is going to help to make an impact and, and to help these communities. I think there, there are so many networks across the border, like in Texas and Arizona and Southern California, that are interested in, in really having volunteer workers and, and having people that can help. And right now, because of the present time, there's a lot of opportunity for remote work. So counselors, therapists, people with legal backgrounds um, can can probably find a, an agency easily to join and and help even if it's you know once a week once a month um, and I think that that is the work that we can do to, to help mm-hmm. yeah I think uh, at a very very also just to simplify it and at a very very basic level for people, you know, how you say the practice and respect for human laws, uh, human rights laws, that's important. Uh, They've been put in place over time uh, through on the ground experienced experts who have been, who are working with this. Um, And I think at a very basic level, practicing and respecting those laws when you're coming across uh, any type of changes in policy or what have you with this issue is, is important. And that, these individuals need to be treated humanely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that also includes everything from the way that we portray them in the media to the language uh, we use when we're talking about them to the way we are personally when we come across them and we want to buy like oranges on the street corner or we want to buy some flowers for our mother. And we try and say, well, it's $5, I'll pay you three. Um, mm-hmm. or, you're, or you're hiring somebody or or whatever it is that you're doing but you're like oh, I'll give you five bucks because you know something you really need uh, when you know th- that kind of work costs much more or I think about our field workers I think about the place where I'm from in Oxnard California mm-hmm. uh, and I see such beautiful work that's going on by the community um, where they're feeding the frontline workers because they're frontline mm-hmm. workers they're essential workers who are out mm-hmm. there through the fires through COVID through everything, they're out there at all hours of the day, working in really difficult conditions, bent over, uh, and getting food on our table. And so they need to be treated humanely. And I love the, the community work that's happening in Oxnard, where people are donating food, they're donating money to feed them, to in turn feed them. And I think it's a beautiful example of, yeah. of some of the answer to this. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, you know, I I would really regret having this conversation with you without touching on, you know, some of the trauma. I'd like to, I'd like for you to share a little bit um, 
because we can be here all day um, with this, um, some of the trauma that, that you've seen with the children and families. I mean, I know it's just something for me, it's something that is always going to stay with me always, always in my years as a social worker and still the work that I do now is what happens when a child is separated from their family. I've seen it over and over and over and over again, you know, where you have these issues in uh, delayed development. You see a lot of problems with their emotional development. You see so many things happening where they can't focus at school. Then kids start having, you know, mental health issues. I mean, and over time, you know, the promise of being returned to your parent and it not happening is horrific, horrific. I mean, you think about like the trauma that we experience as adults when we lose somebody mm-hmm. uh, or we're separated from someone that we love so much. And then we can imagine what that's like for a child who is still developing, whose brain is not even you know, at a point where they can really even grasp it and what that does to that child. And I've I've seen it happen so many times. And I, I, so many times I thought to myself, God, I, I wish, I wish that all these people that criticize these communities can see it like I have, because they would not, if they saw it, they would not be saying what they would be saying. They would not be voting the way they would be voting. So I, I would like for you to share a little bit And maybe if, I don't know, there's an experience that stands out to you or um, anything that you could share, just um, let's say, let's talk in particular about the children and what it's like for them as, as immigrants who've come over and maybe they're, you know, they're, they're separated from their families or they're going through this, these traumatic experiences. Yeah, I, um, I think, I think you're right. I think that, that having a compassionate heart and thinking about this as, as a human, um, in a way where, where you think about, about the experience of children and families, um, about it being important. It is important. It is important to, I think, consider the, the, the journey that they've had and the impact that this experience has. There are a lot of children. I mean, there are countless and countless stories. You know, when I did the work specifically with, with immigrant children, I think the thing that stood out for me was the, the countless stories of, of loss and pain and and hurt because children saw their their parents murdered in front of them children saw their their siblings murdered in front of them because children were assaulted physically sexually because their families were were being asked for a ransom that they couldn't pay and so their you know the the end result was that they they would commit you know they the criminals would commit some type of crime to convince these families that they had to give them the money no matter what. And so there's just a lot of victimization, a lot of pain, some children, you know, just living in poverty. And I think uh, there's so many stories. One, I think in particular that stands out for me was a a young girl who was probably about seven or eight um, and had special needs and arrived into our care. And she was terrified. Her, her, language abilities were kind of limited. Um, So we really had to kind of just learn from her about her as the days went on. And she was, I mean, it was, it was painful to see her be so scared and terrified and so unsure. And we slowly worked with her and we provided care and we tried to provide safety and security and nurturance and, and, 
you know, do as, as compassionately as, as much with as much flexibility as we could care for her so that she could see that we really wanted to, to provide support, but we didn't have contact information for anyone that could possibly help her. We didn't know who the family was. I mean, we had nothing to work with. You know, she was in our care for several months by the time we were able to identify an aunt that she could go with. And by the time she was leaving, I mean, she was happy. She was playing. She had developed a lot of verbal skills, right? We were, we were all bilingual so we could speak Spanish. And she, you know, she was able to really hone in on some of her own language skills. She was able to attend school and do things that she had never done before. And I think it's, it's meaningful. Like this child would not have survived staying in her community. And that was one of the reasons why her family migrated. An aunt had migrated with her, but because she was not the parent, she couldn't stay with her. And that's why they were separated. Um, And so, you know, how scary must that be for someone who has cognitive and developmental delays, who has special needs to be separated from the one caregiver that they know, to be put in an environment with, you know, where there's uh, other children and adults, but someone that with someone that they don't know. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's the, I think that's the piece that, that people fail to realize that these are, these are children who have experienced trauma in their home mm-hmm. that have experienced difficult, difficult situations that for them may seem normal, but they are not in the grand context of, you know, of a, of a child's experience. These are, these are not, it is, it is not okay for a child to, to see their parents murdered. It's not okay for a child to experience the level of crime and fear, you know, living in these communities. Um, And I think the other piece, too, is that this is an ongoing journey. For the children placed in detention temporarily, they are are going to continue this journey. They have legal processes they have to continue. They have an adjustment they have to continue with their, their, whoever has sponsored them. If it's not their parent, if they go with an extended relative, if they go with a family friend, they have to start school, right? And so that's an adjustment in itself they have to navigate a new community. And so these are these are lifelong pro- experiences that will continue to impact. Um, and these children will have to continue to navigate. Yeah, you touch on, on, on that very, very important point that, you know, we think too, I think in the way that I posed the question, it was a little bit like, okay, well, the trauma they endure when they cross over to the U.S., but mm-hmm. we, we fail to think that uh, for many of us that, you know, they already come with trauma. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they've had siblings and people that have been murdered in front of them or they're, they're running from something that's that had their family in such danger or what have you. And then to cross over with very high potential of what could be enduring a re-traumatization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and why the practice of human rights laws and why being compassionate uh, from a, at a base level is so important. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank, thank you for the work that you do. I'm, I'm happy that you're, you're one of the people that are out there. I really am. I've met so many, so many great people over the years um, that are working with such um, vulnerable communities. And I think about them often um, because I'm grateful for them. I know it's not easy work and you're one of those people. Um, I, I just lastly, uh, we're, we're starting to wrap up now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to ask you a, a little bit about, because I know, I mean, there's no way I asked you to send me your CV and I just, I thought, oh my gosh, like, where do I start? This girl's just, <laughs> she's done so much. This is such a, an amazing woman that you are. 
it just what I know you do a lot of you have a lot of works in progress. Uh, you do mm-hmm. a lot of presentations and uh, proposals and applications uh, with these issues of uh, psychology uh, internationally, um, mental health stigma in Mexico, also uh, indigenous community work, migrant well-being and adjustment. So many things, so many things. But I am curious because one of your one of the works in progress ties so much into uh, what I'm currently involved in now, which is rainwater mm-hmm. harvesting um, in Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you have here the you have a global application of the United Nations Sustainable Goals for Indigenous Communities uh, and improving water supply access and sanitation in Mexico. And you have been in touch with. Um, with us at Isla Urbana, which I'm so happy about. And I just want to ask you if you can share just a little bit about that and maybe just touch on, you know, some of these works in progress. And uh, because, I mean, you have a full-time job. <laughs> you have a full-time job right now also. as uh, I think you're running a, a program, right? A residential program yeah. for you. So that then a lot of this other works of progress where you continue to raise awareness uh, in these issues that we're talking about through your past experiences. So if you could talk about those works in progress, touching to a little bit of that work. I don't know how you can do that in a short time. So I, um, I, I, I think my passion really is mental health and well-being, and and how do we improve that? And sometimes we really have to consider the real basic needs, and the real basic needs are, you know, food, water, shelter safety, those are the basics. And there's such a, I think there's just such a need to, to bring awareness and, and and share how important water access is. A lot of your work historically has also been around water access and, and how important that is. Uh, I've done some work internationally. And in when I went to South Africa, I was shocked. I was really shocked to see that there are these massive communities that live in poverty and they, you know, they share one toilet. It's like 20 families share one toilet, 20 families. How, how do they share what, you know, it's like one community toilet. And if it's broken or busted, well, you know, there goes that, then you don't Mm -hmm. have it anymore. And, and, you know, and you touched a little bit on, you know, that the, their, the water access is so limited, they have to go out and, and get the water and you're hiking, you know, three miles one way and then three miles back with two buckets of water. Well, that's not enough for a full family. That's not sustainable. You know, part of my interest in, in reaching out to Isla Urbana was really highlighting and sharing what their work has been. But a lot of my work is really tied around what we can do to improve our, our, our communities, what we can do to, to help um, improve awareness and and educate each other and practice caring for our world and living for a world that that is safer and healthier. And so um, my interest really in, in, in kind of highlighting water supply access and its importance is tied to that. And um, yeah, I've been in communication with Renata and I'm hopeful. Um, I don't, due to COVID, I don't know if our presentation will go through this time around, but either way, I think uh, we'll, I'll continue to try to make an effort to, to highlight the work that Isla Urbana is doing, because I think it is really meaningful. I mean, this is, it's amazing. I, she was sharing just some of the work that you guys have done in terms of, um, build, you know, kind of building these systems for, for rainwater access and and the amount of impact that it, is, it has had on these communities is huge. I think the other piece that was important to me is that this impact has been done without without impacting the cultural 
history, the cultural diversity, the the culture itself, that really it has enhanced these communities without changing them. And that's mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. that, you know, we really want to, to be culturally sensitive. We want to be inclusive. I think we need to think of the perspective and the worldview of the communities that we impact or that we you know have interventions in but we want to we want to maintain the integrity of that community and and you know not coming in and changing things but coming in and showing them maybe a different way to do something that might be helpful for them so that they can have you know if you have access to water you have access to health you have access to food mm-hmm. you have access to things that you can harvest yourself you have access to then you know create schools um, locally where you, you know you can keep the kids there in a healthy way and teach them in a healthy way. And so I think, I think it just, it really is a meaningful work. And so I think that's, that's been my interest with participating in that. My current work is as a director of residential services at River Edge Hospital. A lot of my work is tied around trauma, trauma healing, and um, just mental health awareness. I do a lot of just kind of work within the hospital also on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it is important. You know, I'm a Latina I'm Mexicana, and and I I want to see people who are like me in roles that are leadership roles who 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 have made it, who have worked really hard, right? Who can make a meaningful change, and so um, so I think I'm I'm super proud of the work that I'm doing now. I work with children with adolescent youth who have experienced a significant amount of trauma. It really is in line with you know kind of all the other stuff that I've done historically, mm-hmm. but um, but I'm passionate about helping people, and that's really what it comes down to. Awesome. Well, you can practically practically uh, be a spokesperson for Isla Urbana the way you described it. <laughs> because it, that, I mean, you just totally nailed it right on the head of why I moved to Mexico because yeah. I may have a family now here, be married, have a child now here, but I originally mm-hmm. moved here because of Isla Urbana and mm-hmm. I'm still there and it's, it's a great place to work because like you said, I think after all the work uh, and experiences that we've had, um, when it comes down to those basic needs, you know, having food, having shelter, having water, that we all, everyone, everyone has yeah. a right to that. And water yeah. touches them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's why I've stuck with water for so long. Uh, mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, it's, it's not enough to just work for a cause um, that addresses uh, water needs, but it has to address it in a way that's respectful to the community's autonomy. Uh, and, and I saw that with Isla from the beginning and the fact that they're able to successfully work with communities everywhere, all over um, mm-hmm. the country here in Mexico. It's not easy to work uh, in indigenous with, a, with an indigenous community because they're so far out. It takes so long um, to complete the work. So you have to have so much, 100, 1,000% commitment because it's not like, oh, I'm going to be installing a 1,000 systems pretty soon here. It takes a lot of patience and love. And that's what Isla has. So I'm so happy that there's a connection there. I'm so happy that you are um, highlighting not only Isla Urbana's work, but you know that you're connecting with other nonprofits, with other um, other causes that are doing meaningful work that you're involved with. Uh, that excites me. I love that. And please continue to contact us because any reason for me to work with you is just a good. It's just, <laughs> yeah. Makes me happy. Yeah. Well, I think it just speaks to a lot of our a lot of our work has aligned, and I think that's why we come back 
to working with each other, right? That we start yeah. over the years that we've reached out. Like I reach out to you, you reach out to me because I think I think our intention is one of of considering the human rights of people, of doing work compassionately, of helping people heal. And and I think um, and it's important work and it's meaningful work. And I think that's why I think that's why it's been so important that you know I really see a lot of value in our in our friendship and our and our collaborations. I've I've learned so much from you and I'm so inspired by you and so proud of you know, the work that you've done. But I'm also just really glad that I've been able to maintain that connection and, and the ability to reach out to you and say, hey, Sol, you know, this is what I've been working on. What are you seeing? Amiga, likewise. <laughs> Trust me, <Yeah>. likewise. <laughs> I, the feeling is so mutual. Um, and I think you answered this question, but I do want to want to ask it to you. Um, very straightforward. At the end of the day, this is the last question I have for you. Yeah. At the end of the day, what drives you? What drives you to continue doing this work, Liz? I think that has changed over the years. At the present time, in this moment in time, um, I have a daughter. She is three, and and that is my driving force right now. That I really, I really want to create a world that is healthy, that is safe, that she can live in. And and I also just really want to. I think it just it goes full circle, right? There's just this work that I've done has really tapped into my history and my mom's history and her mom's history and and our family history. But I also want to inspire my daughter. I want to be able to help her build her own path and see her own way. And, you know, we have this joke in my house. My my husband will tell her, oh, mommy's a doctor, right? And um, and she's three to her. That's she's like, no, mommy's not a doctor. She's my mom. And, <laughs> and yes, at the end of the day, yes, I am her mom. But um, but I, but the work that I do, I really wanted to tap into the the things that that will touch, you know, whatever her experience is as she, as she grows older, whatever her life experience is. And so um, I want to I want to make meaningful change. I want to help people. Um, but I really do this this all for her at the present time. So beautiful. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm sending you sending you a big virtual hug because it's been some years. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much for, you for, for reaching out. Uh, tell us how, if, if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, is there a website that they can visit or uh, an email or what have you? Yep. Super easy, super easy website. Anything like email wise, phone number, everything is on the website. So you can reach me at drsolis.org. So D R S O L I S dot O R G. There you go. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning oh, into Rebellious Soul. I hope and I know that this was very informative, helpful to many, and hopefully inspiring. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning into Rebellious Soul. You can find me on Twitter at Sol underscore Garcia. That's S O L underscore G A R C I A. And on Instagram at Sol Sunny Sol. That's S O L S U N N Y S O L. Until next time. <laughs>